This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, the animation might be cheap, but that ship is kind of unsettling. everyone, welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi review and critique show where we're putting the humanities back into science fiction. My name is Gep, and I am joined as always by my friend and co-host Dr. Izix. Hi! And this week we are finally getting back to things with the first episode of Star Trek, the animated series which happened between original series and the movies. So you got a while yet before you get to anything you've heard of. <laughs> no, now I've technically seen some of the animated s- series back in the eighties. You know, <laughs> I'd never seen this. Like I'd seen screenshots of it. People use it for parodies because the animation is so bad. You can literally lip sync anything to it. Pretty much. <laughs> it's also plenty of instances of like, okay, so someone is standing on this side of the. Uh, the bridge in this scene, then we uh, change to a different angle, and they're missing! Oh no! <laughs> yep. So yeah, there, there's a lot, a lot of quirkiness. The animated series is kind of a weird one, because uh, th- it was sort of conceived and pitched almost during Star Trek's third season, but not this animated series. They were considering making an animated series that would be an educational space program set in the Star Trek universe. Well, that'd been kind of cool. In which the Enterprise crew would be teaching a series of teenagers on a ship called the Excalibur about space exploration. Um, Though, given the the time period, I'm not quite sure uh, how effective that might have been. But, you know, (laughs) there's still a lot of things unknown about space at the time. That went nowhere. Then we had to wait uh, like four-ish years, give or take a couple months. Go from 69 to 73. Yes. So in 73, the animation studio Filmation, not to be confused with Funimation, who do the anime. This is Filmation. (laughs) It's like, yeah, it's it's a little easy to get this all confused here, but... uh... This is the one with the uh, you know the, the small eyes, not the big eyes. Yeah, as far as animation general styles go, <laughs> they were a extremely extremely budget animation and television production studio that was operating in the late '60s, early to mid '70s. Uh, the only thing I'd ever seen of them before, weirdly enough, was their Ghostbusters show, which I randomly found on late night TV one time. Yes, because there's the real Ghostbusters, and then there was the other Ghostbusters. Yeah, just as a nothing aside, because there's there's literally nothing to this episode we're about to cover. Spoilers. Uh, <laughs> they did a show long before the Ghostbusters movie called The Ghostbusters, which featured two comedians and a gorilla who solved mm-hmm. crimes. Yep. Then later after the Ghostbusters movie, the... Uh, studio who still owned this Ghostbusters TV name uh, made their own animated show called The Ghostbusters, which was a continuation of that story with the gorilla, which is why the Ghostbusters animated program that most of us grew up with is called The Real Ghostbusters. Yes, (laughs) because uh, names and copyright are kind of weird like that. Yeah, so 
<laughs> filmation, very budget studio, reused animation, did very little animation, kept the characters standing still for most episodes. There is some truly confusing animation choices in this episode alone. Like only showing characters' eyes when they talk, uh, (laughs) characters' faces not maintaining continuity of shape. (laughs) Though I I will give them uh, some props because some of the environment stuff I actually kind of liked. Because, you know, know, spoilers, but there's a go on an alien spaceship in this one. Surprise. Uh, And it actually feels very strange. And I really kind of appreciated that. Even if everyone moving around in it was, you know, being animated horribly. (laughs) Yeah, one weird thing that I did find that was just people have written this about this studio is that as bad as the animation was, they were well known for doing incredible background work. Mm Mm-hmm. So maybe they should have like teamed up with somebody else and like we're gonna just do the backgrounds. Is that fine? Yeah, maybe. So yeah, the backgrounds are great. There's some really good backgrounds and set pieces and ships and things, but character motion not not happening. <laughs> so everyone has to be as still as the background, or else. <laughs> yeah, they are either still or in shadow. Every time someone moves in this episode, it's a shadowy silhouette from very far away. Because they didn't want to animate a walk cycle. Yep. <laughs> Which just, I, it just baffles the mind. That it, I, I just cannot understand at all what they were doing. Or why they did the, this way. Um, apparently, according to one source I found, the common belief for children's animation in the 70s was that children just didn't care. Well, I guess... Uh... That's one way to encourage low standards, but, you know. (laughs) So, yeah, it's just incredibly budget animation. This is like, if you haven't seen it, this is worse than Hanna-Barbera by a fair Mm -hmm. margin. Oh, they also did Brave Star? Some episodes of Brave Star and some episodes (laughs) of He-Man. Apparently they contracted out. Which is confusing because both Brave Star and He Man have characters that move. Yep. <laughs> so they apparently learned to do some movement between the 70s and 80s. <laughs> so I guess maybe it was just that this was an earlier thing, or by the 80s, TV companies had decided that children wanted things to move around a little bit to sell the toys. Oh, yes. <laughs> It's like, we we have to have action for our action figures, man. What are you doing here? This is an interesting one because um, I will admit I'm not super versed on the animation landscape of the 70s, but this is not an animation that is explicitly made for or even targeted towards children. It's essentially the same level of tone as every other episode of Star Trek, the original series. Mm-hmm. A little compressed because, you know, shorter episodes, but yeah. But everything else is basically the same, sim- similar tone, all the same cast is returned. Uh, the only particular exception is that James Doohan is now doing every other voice that is not one of the main <laughs> cast. 
<laughs> I was going to oh, uh, lampshade that later, but yes. <laughs> uh, also, uh, uh, Chekhov's missing. Walter Koenig isn't here. Hmm. Yeah, Chekhov goes away. I wonder if that might be important later in a an episode that's kind of terrible. <laughs> I guess we'll find out. But I suppose we should get into this and see where it takes us. Because to be 100% honest, I don't know how long these will take. This is our experimental episode. And I could have done yes. some tests and things before to figure out the format of the animated series. But I didn't. So uh, welcome to the test episode. <laughs> The test episode of Watchers of Tomorrow Animated Series Adventure Explainer Thingmajig. Yeah, because these episodes are only half an hour long, uh, which in TV time means about 20 minutes, and the, uh, they don't have stories, yeah. at least based <laughs> on this episode. <laughs> I will say, that I, I'm pretty sure the next episode kind of has a story, but yeah, this one's pretty weak. But anywho, let's get into it. So this episode is called Beyond the Farthest Star... Because we're doing that again, I guess. Yep. <laughs> Got to go farther. Uh, it was written by Samuel A. Peoples, who was originally a writer of Western novels, and he also wrote the second pilot where no man has gone before. Oh, yes. Also did some writing for the show's Space Academy and Jason of Star Command. Jason of Star Command. Also Flash Gordon. <laughs> Yeah, so, so a bunch of stuff sort of, you know, contemporary with that uh, time period there. Also, yeah. he was apparently involved in Star Trek 2 somehow. Oh, I didn't see that, but sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, not like the main writer, but like, you know, other people helping out sort of things. A writer. So the Enterprise is charting stars near the edge of the galaxy because they're, they're just there a lot. Yes. <laughs> So uh, we want to chart some stars. So where have we not found stars yet? I know, outside the galaxy. Yeah, which, let's go outside the galaxy and chart stars. <laughs> done. Okay, we're done. <laughs> go home now. No stars. All done. We can leave. <laughs> they suddenly are pulled into the gravity well of a massive dead star. Star, they're unable to break free and have no choice but to enter orbit around it. There, they find that they are not the first ship to be trapped in such a manner as they pull alongside a massive alien vessel of unusual but elegant design. That looks like uh, like a bunch of clustered like structures, kind of all tenuously connected by strands and stuff. It's it's really weird looking, and I really appreciate it's like we're going to go weird with our uh, our animation because we can here because animation you can kind of do that. Yeah, it's a very not model ship it's held together with little strings you it would be very difficult to build as a model so it's nice they have some nice ship designs so uh, that's something uh, to maybe look forward to through the rest of the animated series this thing's getting weird so this ship has apparently been adrift here for over 300 million years but somehow is still sending out a weak signal of some kind Maybe they have some sort of infinite energy source. We should acquire it and spread it to all people across the galaxy. Kirk, Spock, Scotty, and McCoy beam aboard with this newfangled doohickey they call life support belts. Yeah. It's like, we need to go someplace, but we don't want to animate a spacesuit. So uh, we'll just put a glowing line around everyone and call it good. Yeah, they go to the alien ship and everyone has a weird little glowy yellow line around them to explain why they can breathe. 
The ship has an odd pod-like design with large twisting rooms and honeycomb windows and metal that apparently was spun like a spider web rather than cast. Scotty is very impressed. Oh, I'm as well. Uh, this is sort of, uh, you know, grown or, you know, uh, sort of threaded together ship is something that pops up occasionally in sci-fi. I always kind of like it what it does because it's sort of a very different sort of take at how you sort of put things together and making things more alien is always kind of good when you're dealing with actual aliens, in my view. So, so the signal that they are tracking uh, stopped when they came aboard, so they have to explore, and they find part of the ships are still active because the ship is built as a massive ambient energy collector that's allowed it to stay powered for these millions and millions of years. So they have solar panels. Got it. Yes. <laughs> McCoy and Scotty have an uneasy feeling that they are being watched. Spock, of course, dismisses this as primitive fears of the unknown for weak-minded people. Don't worry, Spock. We'll show you up this time. The crew randomly blows up a control panel they go from that scene directly to them just walking down a hallway and shooting a control panel for no apparent reason (laughs) take that control panel this opens a large hexagonal door and inside the door slams behind them because maybe you shouldn't have shot the control panel now how are we gonna get out of here there they are trapped in what appears to be a strange alien workshop uh that made some sort of inner something or other field that generated around the room that cuts off their communications. Hmm. So some sort of uh, energy suppression field or something like that or whatever, uh, you know, random doohy we want to come up with. This yeah, week. yada, yada, yada. <laughs> Insert technobabble here and go. They find machines in the room that uh, seem to be cobbled together and not part of the original design of the ship that is projecting this field for some reason and then as soon as they discover this, something starts to break down the door. Oh no! We're under attack! The machine begins playing a garbled message that Spock attempts to translate, and an insectoid alien appears on the screen. The message is that of danger, because this ship was drawn into the Dead Star, and then they decided to destroy their ship rather than bring a mysterious something back with them, and the message ends before... They can find out what's going on because the door blows up and the room begins to explode around them. Hmm. Well, um, whatever wanted uh, is, is coming in here to kill us uh, probably didn't want us to finish the message anyway. So maybe we should just, I don't know, leave? Hmm. Also, I'll note, I was incredibly disappointed by the bug alien because it looked like a dude in a rubber mask. Yes. <laughs> don't worry, it was just uh, Scotty as the alien. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> like, if you're going to animate a bug alien, why did you just animate a fly in a spacesuit? It's weird. Yeah. Because <laughs> you have to keep consistent with uh, how cheesy, you know, you know, aliens looked at that t- time period, you know? <laughs> so the crew beamed out just in time, but something is beamed aboard with them. A green fog thing flies out of the transporter room into the ship's vents. It doesn't seem to have damaged anything, but since the aliens felt the need to destroy their own ship, Kirk orders Scotty to make preparations to do the same if necessary. Kyle, could you not beam over the uh, the, the weird alien next time, please, maybe? Also, Lieutenant Kyle has a great mustache in this. Yes. <laughs> it's glorious and huge. Despite nothing seeming to have happened to the ship, Spock has picked up a magnetic flux with an almost heart-like beat pattern he says, we've picked up a magnetic flux, and it's fluctuating. Like, that's, that's what a magnetic flux does, Otherwise, it wouldn't be a magnetic flux. <laughs> well, 
technically, if you're going with the pure definitions of magnetic flux, it's just magnetic field through an area. Uh, and so if you have any sort of device that is able to measure the magnetic field as it passes through an area, you can measure the magnetic flux, uh, independent of if it's changing. Oh, okay. Uh, how, however, it is easy to det uh, detect that sort of stuff if it is changing because it generates electric currents. Well, that's a really misleading name then. Yes. <laughs> it, it's, uh, it is still a change of something through something, but it's more appropriate to say it's, it's something going through space and not time. Okay. Even though fluctuation is used in a lot of different uh, time sort of sensitive uh, definitions of things. Oh, that makes sense. So just then, parts of the ship start to shut down, like life support in an engineering lock door thing trying to crush Scotty under it. Dang it, warp reactor, stop trying to kill Scotty. Scotty is trapped, but he's protected by the force field on his life support belt. That's pretty useful. Yeah, I guess he just forgot to take it off. And it's like, well, I guess I'm not going to die so easily now. Hooray! And the crew is forced to cut the big bolt away to free him. That's pretty, it's pretty useless. They just have to cut a hinge off of a door and he's free and fine. So the ship's trying to kill them. Yeah, but the the warp reactor door is now uh, uh, permanently detached, so they're all going to get radiation poisoning, so hooray. Yeah, it's not going to be good. <laughs> Back on the bridge, the phasers turn themselves on and destroy the enemy ship. The Enterprise continues to shut down as something starts reading all the storage banks in the computer. Kirk asks Spock to set up a shield like the one they had on the alien ship around the navigation controls. Because there's no more auxiliary control in the animated series, apparently. Yep. They got rid of that. That was just a problem. That was always an issue. <laughs> McCoy doesn't think that this will do any good because whatever's attacking the ship lived for millennia on the other vessel, so all it has to do is outlive them and then it's fine. But Kirk speculates that the magnetic thingy is trapped by the magnetism of the dead star and so needs a ship to escape and a crew to man the ship. This is confirmed by the green energy creature, which now is centered in what the transcript I was reading calls the bridge defense system. It's a big spiky ball on the roof that we've never seen before. Yes, it uh, popped up slightly for a few moments earlier in the episode, but it was sort of a, this is a thing now sort of yeah. stuff. The being demands that Kirk remove the shield from the navigation, and when he refuses, he begins to shoot him with some sort of energy beam thing. Then he focuses the beam on Spock, which torturing Spock makes Kirk say he's going to remove the shield to get it to stop. But instead, he attaches a life support belt to the console. That They don't explain what it does, but it makes the energy being very angry. Ah, now it's double shielded or something. I yeah. Scotty starts repairing the auxiliary controls, so I guess they were just broken. And Kirk asks Spock to calculate an escape trajectory in his head so they don't have to use the computer. Yeah, thankfully, uh, Spock's a super ge genius, though, uh, you know, it would be nice to be able to check our numbers. Uh, anyone have a calculator? Slide rules. They like still had slide rules. There. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> Spock begins speculating that this being is a form of primal energy, whatever that means. Uh, it's, it's, it's an infinity star. <laughs> and it can form symbiotic <laughs> links with something like a ship essentially becoming the ship's brain, using the ship itself as a body, and the crew become part of the organism like blood cells. Wait, wait a moment. Uh, an energy being taking over the sheep, a ship? Isn't that what Sargon and, like, uh, you know, Jack the Ripper already did? Yeah. Happens. We should, like, figure out a way to prevent that, you know? The being orders them to plot a course for the center of the galaxy, but Spock speculates that this being could reproduce by mitosis 
and infect any ship or computer they encounter. I don't know what got you there, but sure. I guess it's like, well, uh, this could be the worst case scenario, so let's just assume it's true and then uh, move forward and uh, to our rushed ending. Yeah. With the auxiliary controls repaired, Kirk can now control the ship manually, and he orders them to set course for the center of the dead star. Hooray, we're all going to die. As they get closer and closer, the being frillies the ship back to the star itself, and as soon as it leaves, Kirk orders warp drive to slingshot away from the gravity well. Woohoo! So long, sucker. As they leave the being that fled when they thought the ship was going to be destroyed, it begs them not to leave it alone because it's so, so lonely. But they fly off while it's just sitting back at the star going, no, don't leave. I'm so lonely. Yeah, 300 million years stuck on a, a dead spaceship and now who knows how many more on a dead star. Sucks to be him. Now the Enterprise returns back to its original course and continues star charting. <laughs> well, there's no stars. Yep. <laughs> well, they did find one star, I guess, but it was just a dead star, so it only kind of counts. <laughs> so uh, that was the uh, the first episode of Star Trek, the animated series. Yeah. What do you think, Gepwin? Uh, wasn't bad. It was, yeah, it was, it was a thing, I guess. So <laughs> what's weird is I liked it better than certain episodes of the original series because while oh, it was here. bland and boring, it was not offensive. Hooray! Maybe they've learned something. Nice. Hooray! You know, uh, I'd say the same. I, I, I did mention uh, that I did approve of the uh, the strange uh, alien ship interiors, things like that. Uh, and that is kind of something that you can do in animation that is, you know, kind of, you know, you know is, is basically one of its biggest advantages. And not only can you have your characters do all sorts of weird, wacky stuff, but you can also put them in very bizarre landscapes. And uh, I, I, I'm like, hooray, I want more science fiction like this where there's weird stuff. Weird places, not just people. Yeah, the ship was cool because they didn't have to build it so they could do whatever. Though I was disappointed by the alien. (laughs) Yeah. Well, if they're going to have an alien, that means it might have to move. So they're going to have to, like, figure out some way to make that cheap. (laughs) Well, just make it a glowing vapor. Yes. Yeah. Like, they had an energy vapor alien. They had a bug dude who looks like a guy in a mask. It's just weird. But the locations were nice. <laughs> yeah, the locations looked really good. Overall, the story was non-existent. It's like, well, we're kind of just doing a, a series of Star Trek-y sort of things, and then it's over with. The, the weirdness is that they don't... They never bother to investigate the alien. They never bother... They, like, form a plan that they pull off without informing or, you know, doing anything for the audience and they don't even talk about it when they leave and the things like begging them to come back they make a lot of assumptions about how this thing is super dangerous yes (laughs) and it's like well now that we've decided that it's super dangerous we're just going to leave it here forever which is kind of sad because it's not a disinteresting idea that this has some sort of thing that can become a spaceship brain and they could you know talk about whether or not it's dangerous like maybe it is maybe they're right and it'll just infect a bunch of stuff and doesn't care about human life but 
Otherwise, like they just left a sentient being alone on this thing without examining what's going on. And the yes, the ship as organism idea is kind of interesting because even though it's something they don't go into, it's possible to think of any like multicellular organism as just a collection of smaller living organisms that have all kind of glommed together to form one superorganism. Yes, a, uh, uh, a, a, a concert of small cells and various other structures kind of pretending that they're a person. Yeah, because every, every cell in a vertebrate's body is its own living entity. They've become incredibly specialized, so they can't live without a bunch of other cells around. But each one is kind of its own individual entity that's capable of self-reproduction and a bunch of other things that we would need to define it as a life form. They just live in a giant colony that forms up a, for example, vertebrate mammal. So, you know, all your skin cells, all your neurons, all the little bits of your muscles, you know, they are, you know, they are, you know, discrete units that are, are attached to a whole bunch of others uh, of their kind and others of various sorts. And, you know, if you suddenly are missing a bunch of them, then they start to fail. But, you know, altogether, then it's like, hey, we're like a, like a group colony of some sort. Holy smokes, we're a gestalt entity. Something that's greater than the sum of its parts or something. That's kind of cool. Yeah, we've talked about that stuff before. <laughs> yeah. I, I think, though, as, as far as the... I guess the assumption of the, the energy being, being, you know, sort of inherently bad because they say so, that they are taking a lot of that assumption, it kind of feels like, from the uh, bug aliens and their last record there. Um, but we don't really know anything about them other than that they decided to kill themselves over this uh, energy being, you know, taking their ship rather than, you know, figuring out any other way to sort of deal with it. So... Maybe there's something to talk about there. Yeah, they just trusted the bug aliens. I mean, they do show it shutting down parts of the ship because for some reason it like feels like parts of it are unnecessary, which also doesn't make a lot of sense for their body analogy because you you didn't you don't shut down parts of your body that you find unnecessary. We've got plenty of bits of your body that are only useful in very specific circumstances that still function most of the time. You don't just shut it down to save power unless you're in an emergency situation. You know, uh, I, I guess to a certain degree, it could also be sort of interpreted as, oh, new body, who's this? Uh, oh, that's that's an arm. Um, how do I use that? I don't know. Uh, I'm just not going to use it for now and uh, see if I can figure out what I'm going to do otherwise. So it might be a, you know, a situation where it just doesn't know how to operate things correctly until it's finished the memory banks and then gets back to you know fiddling with all those various systems that would have been a much more interesting thing to do is to have it not know how to run the ship and that makes it dangerous instead of it being a malevolent entity uh but you know <laughs> how it's presented is like oh it's just a malevolent entity let's just deal with it and then and we're gone and so i thought just to get some sort of thing in here somewhere the idea that you take like the colony of you know, single-celled organisms that make up a more complex life form and take that, like, one level up, which would kind of be a, like, bunch of complex life forms all together 
forming sort of one individual organism, which is what they're implying here, is something that we have modern examples of and we talk about. It's called a eusocial species, like an ant colony. You know, instead of individual cells, you got a whole bunch of little ants. They're like moving a little antenna around. Cool. And they even have some, there's some people who are making arguments that humans are so social that we could count as a uh, eusocial species because we form large colonies and specialized roles and we're completely dependent on each other for our own survival. You know, that's something that I guess I've thought about myself for a good many years. It's like there are some things that kind of back that up, others that are a little bit more casted in doubt. But to a certain degree, we, are, we aren't necessarily fully dependent on the uh, community, though it does make life a heck of a lot easier. Well, humans are fully dependent on a community because yes. we are a social animal, a human alone like not only is it incredibly difficult for them to survive just on a physical level, mentally they will not survive. Like your body begins to shut itself down if you are in isolation for too long. So we are dependent on a community, but not necessarily the, in big quotes, community. Yeah. The idea that we need to be in this giant super colony thing, uh, probably not small uh, family groups or you know, closer related family groups or mixed family groups, kind of like uh, the closest thing that we've got now that you can look at would be something like crows, which live in small family groups all next to each other. And they sort of swap around and have weird little friend gangs and things. It's very similar to that for how we understand early human societies. Mm-hmm. The other main so, thing uh, that crows are going to take over makes me not like the you social analogy for humans is the uh, idea of the genetic like passing on the genetic material because in a eusocial thing like an ant colony you only have a couple of fertile entities and every other member of the colony is just basically a sterile worker yes a subservient to that centralized uh you know you know sort of genetic prime element i guess which also something like an ant colony lends itself to that sort of disposable parts idea because if you lose several workers it's a hindrance but it hasn't like done anything to the colony as a whole i think that we yeah, it's uh, which is one of the reasons that i don't like the eusocial idea for humans because it it lends itself to that kind of disposable thinking even though no one's directly arguing it like we have a lot more importance on each individual member of a society in our small social groups i guess uh if you if you do want to force this sort of body sort of analogy, you know it's like if you try to uh, you know uh, you know disregard uh, you know some random uh, elements of the human uh, community that you're a part in, it's like more like l- losing a a liver as opposed to just a few cells. Yes, yeah. <laughs> you're losing something that's pretty necessary for you to live. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So, yeah, you know, so, so there's that side of things. Uh, also, it's kind of nice to like actually treat people as worth, you know, just inherently worth being people. So, you know, having a, uh, anything that sort of pushes a, uh, sort of a disregard like that is kind of a pain in the ass. I have to say, uh, um, I'm going to forget the name of the episode, but what this reminded me of that did something slightly more interesting with the idea was an old uh, Outer Limits episode, I think from the 90s run of the series, 
in which uh, humans had invented some sort of AI-driven spaceships. Oh, oh, I think I've, I think I've seen uh. this one. <laughs> and there's like the uh, the guy there, and he has like a, you know, and and there's a kid, and like there's like flashbacks to that stuff, and now the kid is like you know, grown up a bit and is uh, interacting with his AI, and the ship is like meeting up with another ship which has a uh, a girl on board, right? Yes. So these right. these AI ships at some point, you know, did their AI rebellion, and now each ship keeps on board one engineer to keep maintenance and things going. And every now and then they recognize the necessity to get their engineers to breed so that they can continue having an engineer. Indeed. And so uh, you know, occasionally they have two people on board: uh, the uh, you know the the parent and then one of the kids, and then that's it. Which is a kind of more interesting idea of this whole ship as body thing where you you need, you know, a person around to maintain the systems and do the repairs and the fiddly bits. Because even a machine that would be capable of self-repair would have a certain amount of limitation. Otherwise, it wouldn't be able to infinitely self-repair. You'd need something else in there. Yeah, there are some weird limits that you need to basically have a means to get uh, past far as the engineering uh you know thing uh, uh problems are concerned that are not necessarily going to be incorporated into a ship that starts off requiring engineers well like maybe we should cover that at some point outer limits episodes are one-offs but overall i feel like that kind of idea where you already have the ship as an entity and it's already treating people like they're a disposable part of its own body that it should get to control is a slightly more interesting premise than whatever this was supposed to be. But hey, this came first, so you know, not guaranteed to be as good, you know? <laughs> it's like I'm admitting the the short run time of this episode and the very little that they did with the story, I'm like basically run out of interesting things to try to link it to at this point. I guess there is one thing uh, I could, uh, you know, inquire mm-hmm. about is uh, the, the the aliens. Let's let's assume first off that the energy being is as bad as they are claiming it is. All right. Mm-hmm. So, so what? How would you uh, uh, characterize the actions of the aliens that basically destroyed themselves in order to get this th- keep this thing uh, localized here? Would you call that uh, moral or altruistic? Hmm. It's an interesting question. Probably moral. I guess there could be a certain amount of altruism in it because they are knowingly sacrificing themselves to try to defend others. This might be a good, a good, good opportunity to like define what those two things yeah. are and whether or not. <laughs> well, that's a problem because you could define being altruistic as moral. True. Uh, you know, uh, being moral is something, though, that is as a, I guess a wider net of definitions that you could sort of apply to things because, you know, for some folks being moral is always holding a door open for another person. Uh, while other people, it's, you know, a little bit more focused on, well, you know, let's make sure not to kill people. <laughs> and, the, and these are the really, people are going to be sort of starting with sort of different, you know, first premises on, you know, this, and they'll cover a lot of the same ground together, but they're going to end up with some uh, different definitions as far as what is moral at the end of the day. Well, altruistic is a little bit more, I guess, narrow in what's going on here. It's in short, uh, doing some action that uh, benefits somebody else, independent of it uh, benefiting you or not. 
that would that would you say that's a good definition? Yeah. Well, yeah, if it's independent of benefiting you or not. Because then you get into no true altruism arguments of whether or not you have to not be benefited at all for it to be altruistic. Yeah, the I I'd argue that there is you know, if you are only doing something to benefit somebody else so that you look like you're being altruistic, then that is you know something that is completely motivated uh, by self-interest as opposed to you know helping the other person, and uh, therefore, and, and so the that there is a sort of a a weak altruism to that sort of uh, situation where it's kind of working, but it might not count. But for anything where it's like okay, I might benefit from this, but also something nice for them, then yeah, that's that's uh, altruism at the very least. No, I think in this one, you can't really judge because we don't know their society, their own moral standards, or what they did to, like how long did they spend trying to find other solutions? They didn't actually destroy their ship, they just seemed to have killed everyone on board because the ship is still there and functional. Did everyone agree to this, uh, or did one person make the decision and kill everyone? That's that's a very good question. <laughs> we don't know. Uh, in, in some ways, it might have been interesting to, you know, just okay. So there was an energy being, but it's well gone now, or something like that. And we're just, and the entire mystery is trying to figure out one if it's still there, and two, uh, what actually happened on the alien spaceship. That might have been a, a bit more interesting as far as the episodes go. But uh, you know, we have to have things shooting and exploding, yeah. so you know. I wish that they had not had the energy beat. When they first saw the ship, I was expecting it to be a cool, like, oh, you're going to investigate the ship and then discover it's not a ship. It's actually like the egg life cycle of some sort of cool giant space bugs. Wait, Zindi? Insects? Ah! <laughs> they would, like, hatch or something, but no. Because they looked like eggs. A... That would have been neat. Maybe I should write something like that. Then we could have talked about life cycles again. <laughs> and we'd have to compare it to Hooray. that horrible moon episode of Doctor Who. Which is still, I'd say, the worst episode of Doctor Who, new Who and old Who. <laughs> so <laughs> that's like comparing basically anything to a pile of refuse that's on fire, but isn't even in a dumpster. <laughs> it's just on your floor somewhere. <laughs> So overall, with those definitions, it could be altruistic because they killed themselves to keep this thing from spreading. Now, there is maybe some question then is, you know, self-sacrifice in that sort of fashion uh, moral uh, in that it is something that you are, that you know, if their morality allows doing that sort of action in order to prevent greater harm for other people. Or is it moral in the sense that it's always wrong to take your life, uh, and but it is okay to let other things take your life? Because uh, you know, there's maybe you know, some uh, you know some difference there as far as uh, uh, you know various uh, folks are concerned. I don't particularly agree with that. To me, the being able to take your life is just a bodily autonomy argument. True. It's like it basically only affects you. It will have emotional impacts on those around you. Which is something to consider, but it's still a bodily autonomy argument. No one should be able to necessarily prevent you from doing it. Like, I think it's a good idea in society to have, like, checks on it, because there's people who might be driven to it for reasons that, like, could be fixable. So having it as, like, a 
solution of last resort, but I still think it's a bodily autonomy issue and not necessarily a moral issue. I'll have to uh, agree on that, actually, because, uh, you, know, you know, the it is at the end of the day going to be these aliens uh, decision on what they do here. And it's really kind of down to their right, assuming it's not just the one killing everybody else. But, you know, they're all doing it uh, willingly. It would actually be particularly um, immoral to force someone to live when they didn't want to and were suffering. Which I guess being trapped around a star forever uh, until you ran out of air might count for that. Yeah. But they wouldn't run out of there. I guess they'd just be tor- being tortured by the energy being thing. You know, harassed by it, uh, occasionally shot at or something, or having all their consoles explode. You know, See, that also would have been interesting if they just turned it into a multi-generational ship and had this thing trapped somewhere. And then they show up, it's like, we've been here for millions of years, don't open that. Oh no, they touched it. Yeah, please. Oh, dang humans, always going places and touching things. <laughs> So, yeah, there's there sort of lots of kind of random things we can sort of jump off on this episode, but they don't. the episode itself doesn't really kind of latch on to any of them, unfortunately. Yeah, it's unfortunate, but I think we've we've kind of done everything that we can possibly do with this episode. And these are probably going to be a little bit shorter because the episodes are shorter. So why not? So uh, should we move on? Yeah, I think it's probably time for the galaxy's favorite game show. Hey everybody, welcome to an animated version of the galaxy's favorite game show. We have uh, only a few characters this week, including an energy being, but you know, we're not going to hold against him, uh, unlike the crew of the Enterprise. Ho ho! Uh, so our uh, our contestants have racked up a number of points, and we are uh, ready to hand out today's prizes. The first one is To Die is Logical, which goes to the bug aliens for opting to do that instead of risking spreading the energy being to the rest of the galaxy. What do they win, Gepwin? The bug aliens win just a ton of really fun drugs because I hope they had some because you could just do that and have a giant party and then open up all the airlocks. That seems like a fun way to have to do that. Yeah, if you're going to go, might as well go out with style and uh, a bit of fun along the way. Ho-ho! Our second prize is the Puppet Master's Prize, which goes to the energy being for taking over the ship. Kind of, sort of, but not really consistently. What does it win, Gepwin? It wins one of those boxes from... The Beauty of a Rose episode, whatever that was called, Rose something or other, that the green thing was in, because it's also a green thing, but I guess you can look at it. But if it interfaces with the ship, it can help them navigate better, so I really don't know what the issue is. <laughs> uh, I think the uh, the problem is you didn't have a, uh, a guest star uh, on to help mediate or something like that, so everyone just had to throw their hands up and uh, kind of flail around for a bit. Oh. Except flailing is too expensive to animate. Yes. <laughs> so they stand very close to the camera and you don't see their lips move as they speak. <laughs> Final uh, prize today is the Cartoon Tech Prize, which uh, goes to whoever came up with the magical belts they uh, got that let the animators avoid drawing the old spacesuits that they had in the, uh, in the original series. What do they win, Gepwin? They win. I guess we have to send it back in time or something. They could use some tweening software. Cause then, <laughs> then they would have been able to use the time they saved to draw space shoots, suits to make stuff move. So uh, there would have been like a few more frames of animation per episode. Yeah. Would have been nice. That's all we got here for today, uh, uh, everybody. Uh, take us away, Gepwin, and uh, 
I hope everyone has a good day. Yes, thank you, all animators and animated peoples and bug aliens for joining us here on the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show! Woo! So then, uh, that was a thing that happened. Yeah, so I should point, if this is one of the ones that I would not recommend seeking out to watch like if you have you know if you if you're a star trek fan and you have the like cbs all access thing already they're all on there so if you want to see what this is like the like if you have to go out of your way to find it i wouldn't necessarily recommend it so should say one of the weird quirks that i noticed is that they only have it looks like two frames of animation for a character moving forward and they're going into an extreme run. <laughs> Everyone better run. So anytime a character needs to move towards the camera, they just go into an extreme, like, I'm about to go into a sprint pose. <laughs> Suddenly forward. <laughs> I'll have a similar view on it, yeah. <laughs> so next time we have... Um, yesteryear. yesteryear, which I think I've seen. This is like when you see Spock with his weird pet and some stuff. I think there's some time travel, and Spock has to go back in time to rescue his childhood self. Yeah, this is basically the continuity episode because uh, it references things both from uh, Journey to uh, Babel as well as uh, Guard- uh, the City at the Edge of Forever because uh, they use the Guardian to go back in time and. It's fun because this is one where they just go like, yeah, cool. We've actually been looking at the time travel possibilities of a time travel thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, all right, we're going to go back and just observe. Oh, uh, there's a new guy here. Uh, who are you? I'm Spock. Uh-oh. <laughs> Sorry, I kind of spoiled the beginning of the episode. Yeah, I've not seen this one, but it sounds, I don't know how this is going to turn out. I hope some of these have stories. That's all I can say. I think this one is... Uh, like one of the most uh, well-regarded of the animated series, so I guess that's something. Apparently, Spock has a pet shellot, whatever that is. Uh, the uh, the big uh, monstery thing with the uh, teeth and uh, razor sharp claws that uh, you know Spock was sort of uh, made fun of uh, during battle by his mom. It's like yeah, a big teddy bear. Another uh, yeah. And Spock's like it's a little more serious than that, mom. Some sort of saber-toothed tiger. Uh, they actually show up in uh, Star Trek Enterprise. Oh yeah, for some reason. <laughs> oh, they were on planet, you know, on Vulcan there, so you know, running around in the desert, you know, trying to dodge firestorms or whatever, you know. Of course, you could have a big monster come after you. Yeah, because that's what that show turned into. Okay, <laughs> I'm disillusioned with this entire process now, so we should move on. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> okay, so next week we're going back in time to visit Spock's younger self on Watchers of Tomorrow. Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow, Spock gets a backstory. You have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbeam. YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. 
If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on youtube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash Dr. Isix and Twitter at IsixLP. Music is Waveform and Mori's Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs> <laughs>